Welcome back to Soldier Dog. Chapter 21, Dawn, April 24th, 1918. Aquen Wood, near Keshi. At 3 a.m., all the way along the front line, as far as Stanley could see, the men of the 13th Brigade stood too on the fire step. He heard too the time bomb tick, tick, tick of Fidget's watch. A platoon leader brought the rum ration around in a two-gallon stone jar. Open up, open up, he said to each man. His pulse throbbing like a drum, Stanley took the rum for the first time, hoping to still his pounding heart, but it burned his throat and took his breath away. Halos of luminous mist cradled the hollows and crevices of the plain, a whispered word of warning flew like wind across the trench. Stanley's blood ran cold, fear for himself, and fear for pistol, compounded into one. At 3.30, platoon leaders up and down the front line blew their whistles. The Australians climbed over their parapets, bayonets fixed. Stanley scrabbled for his own bayonet to poke a hole in the breastwork of the trench, boring like a worm through wood, a rivulet of sand spilling down the parapet wall. Like the gunners, he could now see without raising his head above the parapet. Eye to the hole, he saw buff and gray and blue lines of men bursting the bounds of trenches he didn't even know were there. To the right, the French blue, directly ahead, the Australian buff, and some English khaki, together, guns raised, bayonets fixed, a flood of men advancing in silence. Behind the wave of attacking riflemen followed four signalers, two carrying a wire on a reel, paying it out as they went, two others carrying lamps, phones, and spare wires. The wires would run from the posts the advancing signalers hoped to set up back to the signal station. The heavy guns burst into fire. 3,000 howitzers! We've got 3,000 howitzers along the front, yelled Fidget, his voice round with pride. The howitzers flashed and blazed, firing shells that screeched like a vast tearing of linen in tremendous arcs across the sky, leaving red shooting star trails till, at the top of their arc, they dipped and flashed red in a distant boom. They're forming a barrage, a barrage of fire to move along in front of the infantry to protect them. Fidget gestured to the horrifying, terrifying, continuous arc of flame that ran for as far north as Stanley could see, perhaps 10 miles long. Fidget laughed happily. We caught him sleeping. Jerry was sleeping. At a quarter to five, a feeble dawn began to creep across the battlefield. Not a bird had risen to greet the day. The front was being very heavily shelled, the earth beneath Stanley shaking like a jelly, the air trembling and boiling. Seismic quavering rippled to the edge of the trench, triggering cascades of earth over his helmet. What was happening? Where was Pistol? Had the bombardment moved closer? Was it aiming for the reserve lines? It was impossible to see what was going on. 
the enemy might be putting down a smoke barrage. Stanley's eyes ached and stung. The heavens finally cracked. A thunderstorm crashed and rolled across the plain. Rain pounded and hammered the earth. Very lights soared like shooting stars above the allied lines, flaring against the glistening curtains of rain. Things were going very badly. Would Pistol be sent out into this? Was Tom out there? For a few seconds, Stanley closed his eyes, then turned away. The unbearable fear, the noise, and the fear together might fracture him, split him in two. It was beyond bearing. He must think of something else to fight it off. There, Stanley bent to the streaming wall of the parapet, a crowd of staghorn beetles trotting up and down. That chalky soil, turned slippery in the rain, was now just the place for a staghorn. They'd appeared with the rain, hordes of them, with their armored bodies and antler-type mandibles. The stegosaurus of beetles. Beetles, Stanley remembered, were everywhere, in every niche on earth, from the most arid desert to the swampiest wetland. Everywhere except Antarctica. Hamish had come up from below and was looking over the top. Stanley shrugged off his raincoat and held it over the two of them to shelter them from the rain that battered down through the netting cover. We'll never see anything like this again. Never. It's the largest artillery bombardment any of us will surely ever see, bellowed Hamish. Are the lines holding? Stanley shouted back. Aye, so far. So far they're holding. But Viers is surrounded by enemy machine guns on the north, west, and south. Amiens is under direct observation. The Huns got a pocket four miles wide and one mile deep around Viers. Hamish gestured toward the two groups of trees to the northeast, barely discernible. And parts of the monument and hangered woods. There were shouts from the signal station, panic, and pandemonium below. A company gone! Hamish leaped away down the steps. B Company gone! C Company okay! Message from C Company. We are surrounded, sir. What do we do? Was Pistol with C Company? Two linesmen rushed out and scuttled over the top, crawling like rats, forward and downward in the drenching rain. C Company gone! Hamish rushed rushed up the stairs and along the trench, stern and gray, his coat running with water like a highland waterfall. He put his eye to the telescope. A few seconds passed. All gone. All dead. There was disbelief in his voice. No communication with the front line. Stanley held his helmet over the lens to keep off the rain. Dead, Hamish said again. All of them. One by one, all dead. The linesmen were slithering onward. Stanley watched them, shaking and horrified. It was impossible, surely, under such rain, such fire, to find and repair the ends of wires. But he still prayed. Find the ends, please find the ends of the wires. Don't let them send pistol. Hamish swung the telescope back and forth, back and forth along the horizon. Sea companies surrounded, all forward visual stations destroyed, all gone, all lines of communication down. He turned aghast to Stanley. We've nothing, 
No communication with the front line. Hamas shook his head in horror. No semaphore, no signal lamp, pigeons, nothing in this. He gestured to the rain. They can't send for artillery support, can't SOS, nothing. Where is he? His pistol with C Company? Hamish paused and looked shocked for a second. Then he turned, and as though talking to an uncomprehending child, said gently, No, laddie. B. He's with B Company. Hamish left, and Stanley stood under the pounding rain, eardrums tearing with the unending noise. To his forward right, the Allied lines looked thin and confused. No more than a brigade here and a brigade there. The church tower on the vulnerable spur of the plateau jutting out to the west was smoldering. What was happening? Where was Fidget? Fidget would know. Had the front line broken? Were men pulling back? Where was Pistol? Still the drenching rain thundered on. The ditches had stretched out into glistening bogs, the intricate lacework of the streams blocked by the shelling. The ground turned to a quagmire. Soaked to the marrow, a stream of water pouring off the back of his helmet and down his neck, Stanley saw figures dribbling back from the front line, from the wood known as the monument, stumbling and sinking in the soupy ground. Everything was wringing wet. The sump ditch had overflown. The trench, already puddled, filled steadily. There was a frog on the duckboards. Funny how the frogs didn't mind the shelling, but the mice had the mine up and had gone underground. If he could only stop his legs shaking, his fingers, his heart shaking, Stanley thought he could focus his field glasses on that shell hole below, the closest one, and there'd be more frogs, marsh frogs probably, 10 or 20 of them in that. Trigger, wherever he was, would be amused by the marsh frogs. Captain McManus came up. Where's the dog? Is he not in? Please, God, they'll have sent the dog. They've nothing else. He started and clutched Stanley. Look, Stanley, he's here. He's in. He's, he's in. Stanley leaped. There, in the confusion of smoke and fog and the glistening curtain of rain, was Pistol, racing like a silver shadow across the greedy, gleaming morass, skimming it as easily and lightly as a bird. There was that long gray head, the commonplace dog with the laughing eyes. Stanley spun on a Catherine wheel of love and pride. There was the sudden screech of a heavy shell. Run, Pistol, run, run, breathed Stanley. The shell dipped at its arc and crashed to the ground some 40 feet below Pistol. The ground beneath Stanley shook and rattled, the earth of the parapet cascading down, but the dog never so much as flinched, was still running onward. What a dog, laddie, what a dog! Stanley pulled aside the sodden, battered Queen Anne's lace on the parapet to see. Then he yanked aside the camouflage, ready for pistol, feeling for the tidbit in his pocket, watching with bated breath as the dog leaped over the fire step and, in a single fluid motion, sat, breathless, tongue loose, Panting, grinning, panting, grinning. There was something about this dog, this nondescript dog he'd once thought he'd never love. 
something in those laughing eyes that gripped Stanley's heartstrings now like a vice. Stanley knew at this moment and with total certainty that he must never, ever lose him. Stanley's hands trembled as he unscrewed the cylinder. He noted the time of departure given on the note, 9.30 a.m., and handed the message to James. Good boy, good. Stanley fed Pistol the canned beef. James bent and patted Pistol then, sheltering under Stanley's raincoat, glanced at the note and checked his watch. 9.37, I salute your dog keeper rider. Nearly four miles in seven minutes. James looked down. From B Company, he said, then read aloud so Stanley could hear. Frontline companies, 2nd East Lanks and 2nd West Yorks forced back from the monument to the north to railway station, making our way westward along railway line to northeast corner of Equen Forest. Enemy troops have taken Vier and the monument and infiltrating the Equen Wood from the monument. All signalers and forward signal stations killed or captured. All lines of communication down. Remains of Yorks and Lanks are surrounded in the monument have no ammunition, no supplies. German position attacking not known. Further attacks expected. Stanley looked up at James. The East Lanks? Tom, he was with them, surrounded and with no supplies? Infiltrating the Aquen? Coming here? He clutched at James's coat. The East Lanks? But James had already turned, was hurling himself down the steps to the signal station, shouting, They'll be decimated. The field glasses were streaming. Stanley must wipe them, but his hands were wet, his coat sodden. Men were pouring along the communication trench to Stanley's right, crowding into the intersection beyond Fidget's Hole, collecting in the back lines, men with no puttees and torn tunics. There were shouts that the right flank was coming back in disarray. Somewhere an officer bellowed, Retreat! Retreat! Turn round and run like blazes. There was shooting in all directions. Take cover, take cover. Collect mill bombs, arm yourselves. Keep moving backwards. Take up position 100 yards back. Stanley's parapet was whipped by a hailstorm of bullets. Everyone was down on all fours in the sump water of the trench. By Fidget's hole, men were yelling and firing. In the division of the trench beyond Fidget was a shaft crowded with wounded men, helpless and immobile, a jumble of men of all stripes. Move on, move on! There was a screech. The earth of the parapet spewed up. Dirt rained over Stanley and avalanches. Showers of mud and metal collapsed the roof netting, shells pinging as they hit the corrugated iron cover of the signal station. Move on, move on! To Stanley's left, the artillerymen collected on the fire step and leaped down into the stream of wounded men, keeping low, half crawling along the duck boards. Down the trench, down the trench! Stanley hesitated. Where were the signalers? What would James's instructions be? He forced his way against the flood of men toward the signal station, knowing, without looking, that pistol would be at his heels. Bullets whistled and screeched overhead. There was James on the stairs to the station. Behind him followed a caterpillar of signalers, runners, a trench mortar officer, the wireless officer, 
all mud smeared, lugging boxes, cables, tables, the fuller phone emerging, blinking into the light like strange earth-dwelling slugs. At the far end of the straight bay, the Australian brigadier general was running against the flow of crawling men, yelling at them. Get up and get into place and I'll tell you when to take cover. Stay in your place. Hamish thrust a Lee Enfield rifle into Stanley's hands. Fix the bayonet. Stanley fixed the bayonet and rotated it. He was in the front line, would have to defend himself, to kill if necessary. He slid the bayonet abruptly into its housing over the barrel. And if you need Tay, drive that toothpick as far home as you can. I and twist it too before you pull it out. It's him or you, and for my sake, make sure it's him. There were more shouts. Stay where you are and hold the line. You're going into action at once. Stanley was pushed aside as another rush of men, not Australian these, but Englishmen in khaki, came over the fire step and plunged along the trench. Was that the red rose of the East Lanks on those collar batches? Were they men of Tom's battalion? Abandoning the bayonet, Stanley rushed after them. Were they Lancashire's? Leaping and dodging, he forced his way downstream through the rush of men, with pistol at his heels, weightless and agile as a shadow. The last of the Lancashire's, the one at the back, that one, that last one was Tom's height and build. Stanley ran, shouting frantically, Tom, Tom. No one turned or stopped. Tom, Stanley called again, scrambling through men. He reached the intersection and snatched at the back of a coat, missed, and snatched again at a sleeve. Tom Ryder, was he with you? Tom Ryder. The soldier rushed on and Stanley felt where an arm should be only a fraying cuff was disintegrated in his hands. He opened his palm and saw shreds of bloodied cloth. Too desperate to compass the man's wound, Stanley ran on, caught another man by the shoulders, and made him turn. Sir, sir, was Tom Ryder with you? Do you know Tom Ryder? The man looked at Stanley, his eyes glassy with fear. Yes, he's out there, cut off in the monument. What's left of C Company is up there with what's left of the second West York's. Brave, your Tom Ryder, had Jerry up with a revolver, kept on shooting on and on, gave his men time to pull sandbags into place. There's a machine gun on them somewhere, snipers on them everywhere. They're sitting ducks. No ammunition, can't get a message out, the signal station is blown to bits. He shook his head, turned and moved on. Stanley leaped up the nearest fire step, straining to see the group of trees he knew to be the monument. Everything was quiet there. Behind him, someone was shouting, Retire and get the lads back! Get the lads back! Stanley forced his way upstream against the flow of men, back to his position post. With trembling, mud-clogged hands, he grabbed his field glasses and again scanned the ring of trees around the plain. The brigadier general was back, walking along the trench. His voice was calm and slow. Stay where you are. Hold the line. Company commanders to assemble on the double. We're in the most advanced position. The enemy's broken through on our immediate front. It's through and past us on the right flank. Fidget was huddled on Stanley's platform next to his pigeon basket. Sodden strands of straw-colored hair clung to Fidget's streaming forehead. His gaunt face, a picture of alarm, fog, and confusion in his watery eyes. 
The day had perhaps been too much for him. His eyes skittered and his mouth was helter-skelter as he said, We'll never get out. Never get out. Stanley gave an irritated shake of the shoulders. We're better off than the men in that one. Would you rather be there? Stay where you are. Hold the line. Stay where you are. Hold the line. An hour passed while officers collected stragglers and non-combatants. Men of all stripes were armed. Anyone who could still hold a rifle. Tailors, grooms, buglers, offers batmen, even cook. Fidget and Stanley waited in line with bayonets fixed. They were given a dry biscuit, then stretched out into a skeleton battle formation. The rain was lighter now. Stanley could see where the line to the left was scattered and broken, manned by an exhausted ragtag battalion. The English 8th Division in the front line was overwhelmed, had sustained losses beyond endurance. The medical services were overwhelmed, and in the shaft beyond Fidget, wounded Lanks and Yorks were being patched up by their own comrades. Hamish and the Sappers, under Captain McManus's direction, were setting up equipment in Stanley's dugout, building a new forward signal station. Stanley, eyes straying helplessly towards the monument, was supposed to be rigging up the Aldous lamp. There will be a counterattack, said Hamish grimly. The generals won't let Amiens fall. Won't let. Viers stay in German hands. There's no option for them. Sooner or later, there's going to be a counterattack. Pistol half sat, half crouched, trying to keep his haunches above the sump water of the trench, never taking his eyes off Stanley. An iron roof was dragged over the trench. Men hauled up reels of cable, looped wires around the walls, and set up the instruments. Looking up from his polishing of the lamp's lens, Stanley saw the gray dog raise his head, too. He saw the dog's unexceptional looks, and he saw in his solemn eyes the wise and loyal soul within. Hamish, too, watched as Pistol's nose followed Stanley's hands as they coiled the wire of the lap and said, by any measure, that dog is more laddie than a dog.